Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Welcome to the MIP. Yeah! <laughs> the Michael Podcast. You knew this was coming. Guess who? Oh. Let me start this thing off. Join me every week for the Michael Irvin Podcast. We'll give you the full MIP experience. I'm talking everything from football to fashion. I will be chopping it up with playmakers, headline makers, and I am throwing haymakers. I'm the MVP of the MIP. Don't miss it. Download new episodes of the MIP, the Michael Irvin Podcast, every Thursday on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host. So happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Adam Maris of DNVR, one of my go-to people, especially when I want to talk about the Nuggets, but honestly when I want to talk about anything, and had a great conversation talking about Nikola Jokic's MVP season, Michael Porter Jr.'s sophomore campaign, where the Nuggets go from here, and so much more. Uh, quick apology, I didn't notice at the time, but my microphone cord was loose, so it was actually using my computer's mic rather than my actual microphone, so the audio quality is a little bit worse on my end than usual. Should still be, you know, good enough, but just wanted to note that at the outset, and apologies for that. Conversation runs about an hour. Hope you really enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I mean, you are you are a more, I mean, you've always been in demand for me, but you're a more in demand guest right now for a variety of reasons, <laughs> one being that you are, as always, a great podcast guest, but one of them being that the team that you are follow the most closely has the presumptive and deserving MVP on it, and while Jokic has been great for years now, the step, like, this is something Nate and I were talking about in terms of whether Jokic should be heavily considered for most improved player, and I guess instead of putting my thoughts on it first, I will open the 4D, like, how do you think about Jokic in the most improved player conversation. Well, first, let me say it's funny you said, you know, in demand because when the Nuggets got Aaron Gordon and they went on immediately went on a, a winning streak, got some impressive wins. There was a week there where I was getting the phone calls and texts nonstop and, hey, can you do this? Are you interested in doing this? And I was like, oh, man, this is great. You know, the Nuggets center stage. I get to come here. And then when Murray went down, it's like, OK, they all stopped. <laughs> and <it> was the, <laughs> the Nuggets so... moved back to the back burner. And it's like, oh, geez, that was it was a fun week. Um, but to answer your question about Jokic, it, it, this is a funny one for me, to be honest, Dan, because there are aspects of his game that have really improved, namely just his 
aggression as a scorer. And I think a lot of that does come from his body. It's funny. He had a funny quote as the season began where somebody where he maybe it was actually in the bubble where somebody asked him about losing weight. And have you, you know, you used to talk about how your weight served you in the post. Do you miss it at all? And he said, yeah, that's just something I said. So you guys wouldn't keep asking questions about it. (laughs) That's amazing. It's just like the most hilarious answer. And it's and I actually think that that's the biggest difference is before he could be this level of dominant, but sort of like pacing himself. And now he's just I it's it's not inconsequential that he had the second shortest offseason of anybody. The Lakers and Heat had the shortest, but, you know, him, him like a week less than them came in in better shape, the best shape of his life. And then is going to it looks like knock on wood play in every single game this season, because I do think that Jokic is one of the best conditioned athletes in the NBA. And it's funny that to people people won't say that, but I'll say it because I watch the guy play 34, 35 minutes a night every single game and and play at a high level even into the fourth quarters. Yeah, and unlike some people, when he, when he commits what Nate and I call Eurofouls, you know, even though Europe, Europe yep. is basically legislated them out, his are more frustration rather than fatigue. You know, it's yep. more like, hey, I'm pissed off. I don't want to do this. Or like, I want I want more time to yell at the refs rather than, <laughs> rather than oh, I can't make it down the floor. I'm just going like, to. And there are some guys who do that. And, you know, as long as it doesn't get you into problems, it's not the worst. I, I don't love it. But, you know, you get in there. But you, you brought up something in there. I mean, playing in playing in every game or, you know, close to it if he ends up, you know, missing one for some sort of right. just reasons. That's an important part of his value. But also, Jokic... Playing 35 minutes a game, like that's another, you know, it's when, when you talk about like this came up, you know, most improved or most valuable player is value. Being on the floor is not only is it, hey, you're a great player, like being out there is better, but also that's fewer minutes that the team has to manage without you. And the Nuggets backup center roulette has been notable this year. Now, some of it it looked worse just because they didn't have the kind of the green Millsap combination as available. And so then you had to trust the other guys more. But 35 minutes a game for 69 games so far, and that will bump up, you know, the games played will bump up. Minutes per game, we'll have to see. And that, you know, that... If, if a player is the most valuable or in the conversation offensive player in the league, you know, being on the floor for over 2,400 minutes in a 72-game season is exceedingly important. And, and that has been even more important, I would argue, for the Nuggets just because in, in the, let's call it the last couple months, just because of the other absences in the front court. Now, if you yep. were to tell me on, that basically any, any other team, their starting point guard and their backup point guard would be hurt at the same time, one out for the season and the other <laughs> right. out for indefinite periods of time. You'd be like, oh, their offense is going to be completely screwed. And a part of what makes, you know, like the value over replacement player is that Jokic is, he's the hub. He's, he can, he can run the offense. So not only is it, you know, like they've survived. I mean, they've done better with Jamal Murray out than I, than I ever expected. But well, can I, can I speak to one aspect of that though, real quick? Sure. Because I think it actually hints at part of Jokic's value. It's his adaptability. And I think this is the big thing is he did have a specific style of playing when Jamal Murray was on the court. And it was a lot of two man game, a lot of pick and roll, a lot of back and forth between them. But it wasn't just Murray went down, as you mentioned, also Monte Morris, also Will Barton, the starting shooting guard, and then also now P.J. Dozier, the backup shooting guard. So the entire 
first string and second string backcourt going down. And you talk about, well, now Michael Porter all of a sudden has really stepped up and Compazzo has really come along and, and, and looks great. And it's a testament to those guys. But I think it's also a testament to Jokic to saying, OK, I can't play the same way with Compazzo as I did with Jamal Murray. So I got to play a different style. But immediately and I'm, when I say immediately, I mean, literally the, the next game, changing the style of play to fit those guys and it's succeeding. And I think that's the one thing people probably unless you watch every single night, you just think it's like, oh, they're doing the same thing plug a new guy in like no the nuggets have reinvented their style of play around Jokic. he's still the hub just a hub in a different way and it works almost as well as it did with murray yeah which is which is truly incredible and Jokic is it's it's so interesting that the top like as i see it and i know that there are others who disagree and more power to them that to me the top two players in the mvp conversation are Jokic and steph curry both of whom are these supernovas offensively that have defensive limitations and we'll get into that for both of them but what I lo- part of what I love about that race, and it gets into part of why I love basketball, why even though it was the sport I got into last, it's been what I, my analysis is and everything else, is because these two unbelievable talents, both built completely differently, and mm. they succeed in very different ways, albeit in, you know, like there are elements that you could say are somewhat similar. And a part of it is that something that I love about Jokic and part of why he's my one of my favorite players to watch and one of my I mean I could say ever for me because I've you know only right. been following basketball closely for fifteen years, but he probably would be anyway, is that I Jokic to me, offensively, it's not only the idea that he has no weaknesses. Like the that there there are lots of other guys that are good. It's that it's so hard to take him away. Now, like there there yeah. are other guys who are very talented, and you could argue maybe like, oh, if they're you know, if Zion's running with a head of steam, like that might be quote unquote harder to stop if you want to think about something like that. But the thing with Jokic is, you can think about it in terms of the players and the schemes that you want to put on him. So there are other bigger dudes where, like, I mean, if you want to go back to Dirk or Kristaps Porzingis or, you know, wherever, okay, put a smaller guy on them. Their handle isn't good enough. They can do other things. Or put somebody really big and they can't move them and they're going to get, they're going to, something else is going to happen. Or... They're a bad free throw shooter, so you can you can do hack a shack or some or Dwight Howard and all that kind of stuff, and you, you'll take them out of their game. With Jokic, yeah. none of those exist, as I can think of it. And you know him, you know his game better than I do. Can you think of any? Well, I mean, he's got to. The one thing is, is you've got to have enough like guys that can punish the double team because I do think that what's going to happen in the playoffs. My biggest fear is that they're just going to send two and three bodies at him and really muck up like the cutting lanes and then just dare Composo to shoot and you know some of the Aaron Gordon to shoot at volume and this or that and just live with it. And and when I say live with it, I mean honestly not even running out at those guys. And that's the one thing. But this you're kind of hinting at what I'm getting at with the adaptability thing, which is in the like the macro level. Okay, we're going to completely change our style of attack and we're this type of team now it's almost like tim duncan had the early low post bruiser type player and then later on they became the the beautiful game and you know he was uh, the fulcrum of that as well just in a different way Jokic is doing that in one season but he also does it possession by possession and that's yeah. what you're getting at like you throw a big on him okay we're gonna come up top and run pick and roll we're gonna do this and that or i'm gonna work the elbows or if i have to i'll post him up but we're gonna try other stuff and you switch a little to him okay i'm gonna go down to the block i'm gonna send a double okay i'm gonna kick out or 
I'm not going to double. I'm going to score. Just there, he just has um, he can adjust his game on the fly based on who's with him and who how the defense is guarding him in a way that is not quite a hundred percent perfect yet, but it's more perfect than it's ever been in terms of he feels very confident in whatever situation you're giving him right now. Um, and and he's honestly unique in that he's less maybe the funny thing about contrasting him to a Joel Embiid or even say an Anthony Davis or a LeBron James or someone like that is those guys are sledgehammers. The thing they do best, it's very difficult, if not impossible to stop. But with Jokic, it's not that he's a jack of all trades because he's better than a jack of all trades, but he's maybe less of a sledgehammer at any one thing. He's just so good at everything. Right. And that has been, you've, you've brought up the like adaptability and it's, it's not only the physical part. I mean, like being big, you know, even though he's much more slender than before, but just being a tall dude means that if you can, with the way that Jokic uses leverage and everything else, like he, he does a better job of attacking size mismatches than a lot yeah. of other players. But it's also being small, being a little bit thinner and also just having a good handle and being an unbelievable passer means that he can handle some of those like strength and height and all the like, some of some of the are the speed mismatches and that has really affected it. and like I mean one way of kind of describing like I, I had Jokic as a second tier most improved player but I think part of what the argument would be for first is there isn't a great kind of calibrator for involvement within the offense but one that uh, your former colleague my current colleague Seth Parno has brought up like basically kind of the idea of total usage back you know when you when you guys were at Island Calculus together is kind of like the way the way I kind of is usage combined with assists per 100 possessions is kind of a rough mm. way of thinking about it and so Jokic last year I mean take out that he's doing this for a center just for a normal player 27% usage and had roughly 11 assists per 100 possessions. And then he doesn't, he turns the ball about five times per 100 possessions. This year, ramped that up to about 30 usage, 12 assists, because uh, assists don't count in usage as basketball reference does it. And then assists, or right. turnovers haven't gone up. They've actually gone down a little bit. So to be able to be, so he is a materially larger part of their offense than he was before. And that's actually a parallel with Joel Embiid. Um, and then the other parallel that both these guys have is that they've they've done that. They've become a larger part of the offense, but they've done that while also becoming more efficient individually, which is incredibly right. difficult. And so for Jokic, I mean, the jump from being, you know, and, and again, this is only individual offense from, you know, 16 and a half true shooting to 65, even if this is a more favorable offensive environment. That is gargantuan. Like, that is game-changing for the league. And not that every possession Jokic has ends in a shot for him, but to be able to convert those opportunities so much more regularly, making more threes, doing better from two, getting to the line more and making more from the line. Like, all of those things are extremely important, not only for the Nuggets at full strength, but also at less than full strength. And the foul shooting is an interesting one because I, I mean, it's too small of a sample size. The last 10 games or so, Jokic has really started to get into the line a lot. And I, I'm really curious, just watching him, I'm really curious if he's sort of learning, like, okay, this is what they want to see to draw fouls. His finesse game, you know, I, I talk about this all the time. If you look at the guys who shoot the most in the paint but get the fewest foul calls, it's Valanchunas, it's Vucevic, it's Jokic. What do they all have in common? They're below-the-rim finesse post players, and that just doesn't, for whatever reason, just doesn't generate a lot of fouls. And I think Jokic is kind of learning, like, okay, there's – uh, he's learning better the balance between go up and try to finish this one and go up and try to get the contact on this one. And just the last 10 games, he's been getting double-digit free-throw attempts. And I'm curious to see if that if that holds going forward. 
Um, you talked about his size and being skinny, though. One thing that I think is important with him, he has very wide shoulders, extremely high reach, and really wide hips. So as much as he has skinny and is skinny and he's really trimmed down, he's not skinny in the way you know Giannis is skinny or, or Nerlens uh, Noel or Nerlens Noel or one of those guys. Like he is thin, but he has just a wide frame. And when you put a PJ Tucker on him, Jokic's spin because of how wide his hips are, like his spin move forces PJ Tucker to shuffle his feet four times. You know, just just to keep up with the the width of him. And he, that's even different. I think it, maybe the closest comp to him in the NBA currently is Demontis Sabonis. But Sabonis, who's re- also really trimmed down this season, you look at him and he is just skinny. He has a skinny waist. He has skinny shoulders, low reach. And it doesn't have that same effect, that same ability to make teams like f- feel like they have to double or triple team him in the post. And I, and that's one of the big things about him. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And when you combine that with the skill level, like whether we're talking footwork or, you know, recognition and, you know, Jokic's mind for the game and everything else. And I like what you brought up in terms of recognizing the fouls. And, and one way that like, it's, it's a weird parallel to draw, but I think you'll probably get the thread of this, which is intelligent players with physical capabilities that are bad at defense in college and sometimes in high school often end up becoming good defenders because they yeah. understand how the game works. And like Ben Simmons is probably the best modern example of this. Like Ben Simmons at LSU was a horrendous defender, but he was a mm. horrendous defender because he never got into a stance and he didn't care. He was right, not right. a horrendous defender because he couldn't figure out what was going on or because he you know was was a bad athlete or something else like that. And so with Jokic, I think the way that I would describe it, and I've seen a little bit of what you're talking about, I think you've seen more of it than I have, which isn't a surprise, is that when you have, you know, like when you have somebody who's thinking about this stuff a lot and who cares about it a lot and who is very adept at the different elements, mental and physical, you start to realize, okay, what is different about what I'm doing? What is different about what they're doing? And at a certain point, you go move away from the refs are out to get me and say, is there something structurally, tactically, physically that's different about it? And some players do that really early. Like, I mean, Trey Young has been a preternatural foul drawer since I saw him in high school. Like, that's just something Mm. that he's always done. But for some guys, just like how I talked about guys that are bad at college college defense getting there, they haven't really put – their mental and physical energy behind that because there's so many other things to think about. And I mean, for a center, you have Jokic's role on the offense, his role in the defense and everything else. But it's not a surprise for me, especially now that he's played more in the playoffs and you get the higher stakes, that that could be something he starts to really think about more and maybe something that the the coaching staff the analytics group can start to put some video on it's like these are the things that get called these are the things that don't get called right right it's totally i mean i definitely think it's something i henry abbott tweeted out a thing today about Jokic got the most last two minute report calls go against him in the last this season and over the last five year stretch of anybody in the nba and i just i honestly do think it's because his game is predicated on avoiding contact and when guys do make that marginal you know, hand on the hip or whatever, it affects him the same way it would affect a Damian Lillard foul line jumper. But those ones are expected, whereas a post move, it's like, yeah, there's contact because that's how they play. I just think he's learning a little bit more. Like, I feel the hand on my hip. No finesse this time. Go into it, and, and then you'll get the, the foul call. But like I said, it's a, it's a recent thing. I'm curious to see if that continues and, and if he can continue to get um, you know to get to the line. It just it seemed like such a point of emphasis. He had 17 last night, which is, a, I believe, a career high. So there's certain 
certainly a trend happening with him um, recently. The other thing about his value, though, and this one's a little bit more esoteric, but the, the one thing about him is if you look at LeBron James, um, James Harden, uh, Luka Doncic, the guys that get lots of assist totals, their teams don't always average a ton of assists. And that's because I think a lot of it, the possession either, you know, almost always ends with them. One thing Jokic is very good at, and this is, you can't give him full credit because it requires players that also buy into this, but he's very good at getting out of plays, like setting the table for a play and then getting out of the way if that's what needs need to be. Or, you know, just making a pass he knows will lead to the open pass. And you just see it so many times where it's like he could kick to the quarter and make a, you know, a semi-contested three. Or I kick to the wing and the wing kicks to the quarter and gets a wide open three. And he just makes so many of that. So you look at him and you go, okay, he's among the top in the NBA in assist leaders. But he also always plays on a team that's among the top in team assists. And when you see a... You know, Austin Rivers has joined the team and he's talked a lot. I, I highly recommend anybody that wants to understand this Nuggets team. There's I think it's pinned to my profile, an interview with uh, uh, with Austin Rivers after a game where he's just talking about the culture that Jokic and the Nuggets have established and how it's unlike anything he's he's ever seen. I think that's another part of value that we maybe maybe it's marginal because it's hard to quantify, but it's something that is very real that Jokic has led this to this um, Jokic and Malone and, and the Nuggets have led to this culture in Denver where guys really do seem to be willing to sacrifice. Michael Porter, high-volume shooter, he's bought into the system. All these guys have bought into to sacrificing certain aspects of their game, and I really do think it's a it's one of the things that, that people should look at when they look at Jokic. The way I like to describe that is kind of the ecosystem and yeah. that there are different ways that teams can succeed. And there are also, I mean, you can, there, there are some offensive players that are more or less valuable. I think it's it's a shame that Harden has missed so much time this year because we kind of got to see both parts of it to an extent. I mean, we already knew exactly what he was in Houston. But yeah. the and, and that's not to say that one approach is significantly better. There's also some elements that's just like who else do you have? Like the the Mavericks don't right. always have the greatest collection of passing around Luca and you can get away with that sometimes you do that. I mean, we're seeing some of the challenges for the Warriors offensively not having I mean the the first like 15 games of the year when nobody else knew what was going on and they were just like not passing the ball and everything. Well, you know what? This is what's funny though because I think there's something to this Warriors thing. One of the conversations around the Warriors of should they change their style of play dramatically because they don't have smart players that are capable of – and skilled players that are capable of punishing it. But I think – a little bit. Yes, they have tailored their game and changed it a little bit. But I think part of this was it's hard to teach players how to play. It does You can't do it in one week or one yes. month. It takes an entire season. And now you're looking at a Warriors team that is a much more fine-tuned guys understand. And look, part of this is injuries. You know, Wiseman probably was going to take more than one season to, to kind of get this. And so injuries have maybe fostered it. Kelly Oubre went down for a long period and they played some of the best balls. So some of this happened with them. But I do think that it's – But I think people are too quick to say, oh, we have to change this the best style of basketball is that is a more balanced approach you're right that not every team can do it and if you have a Harden or Luka it makes sense to keep the ball in their hand but if you can foster an environment where every player is able is like allowed the opportunity to flourish you're going to have some bumps and maybe it'll end up killing you down the road if you can't get over the hump but if you do get over the hump you do become the best version of yourself and I think the Warriors are seeing that with some of their hot you know how they've looked better over the last several weeks than they they did in the middle and early parts of the season and I think Denver is another 
another team that's just like that? Would it be better if you just posted Jokic? Probably early on when they when they couldn't get things going and, and it wasn't looking great. ISO, MPJ, run, pick, and roll here. But instead, over time, they've developed this this ecosystem, as you put it, where the guys do just feel you know it's it's grown into a thing where all of a sudden Compazzo and Dozier and all the I mean how many Nuggets players look like real players that coming Shaq Harrison looks like a real player and he's been cut from two teams this season um so I just I think there's something about that ecosystem that that brings out the best in in, in players that are a part of it yeah I think you need you need to get players to buy in but one of the easiest ways to get players to buy in is Succeeding, you know, like yeah, just just, just sure. like in just like in anything else, and so you know the Nuggets making the conference finals last year. Also, I mean, they've had a they had a great wow. offense long before that was the case. Uh, before I want to talk a fair amount about Michael Porter Jr., but before that, Jokic's right. defense is obviously an important. Like, it's it's an important part of the conversation. Both, yeah, I mean, in terms of MVP, but also like I mean, getting in stuff to best player in the NBA and all that. Do you feel like the criticisms, some of them have been levied by me and you know by Nate and other people? Do you do you think of that as as fair? Do you think of that as like you know like or, or is there are there are there nuances that are being lost because you you watch so much more of him than I get to? I mean, no doubt. I mean, especially you know he's he's my friend, so I want everybody to know I can say this, but I think Nate Duncan's probably the in my opinion, the most off base in his criticisms of Jokic as a defender, um, you know, and he's been pretty loud about that, especially this season. Um, I, you know, I've said this a lot. He's really bad as a last line of defense. Like we're going to funnel everything to you, but that's not the only style of defense in the NBA. And I think we're seeing more and more teams that can succeed in, in different areas. And here's a take for you, Danny, that I've been kicking around a lot. And I think that it's, it's becoming more and more evident as time goes on. I think we're actually overrating a lot the value of the rim protector and underrating a lot the value of the perimeter containment. And it's funny because the guy you compare Jokic to the most is Joel Embiid because, you know, oh, he's the two-way player, this or that. Embiid missed, I don't know, 10 games, 11, 12 games in a row. And the 76ers were dominant. They went up, I think, seven points per 100 possessions. Yes, it's a small sample size, but they played the Clippers. They played some really good offensive teams and just completely shut them down because they have some of the league's best perimeter containing players. And when you have a you know seven foot one shot blocker behind you, and you perimeter contain, you end up with an un- unbreakable line of defense. But so often, guys think I, I think analysts and and even just people when you watch the game, you think of rim protector like nobody can contain in the NBA. So we got a rim protector that deters everyone. And I just think those two things play in such perfect balance, but they're often always credited as one and not the other. The Nuggets prior when they had Jamal Murray and Michael Porter had really bad perimeter containment. I mean. Some of the worst in the NBA as they've evolved to having, you know, Compasso and Shaq Harris. It's funny that these are the guys they have now, but Compasso and Shaq Harrison, you know, they've been a lot better at containing on the perimeter. And I think, you know, they, I, I think that they're, you're going to see a much better defensive team from the Nuggets in the playoffs this year. And a lot of that is Jokic, who has, in my opinion, a very Marc Gasol-esque ability to sort of play up the court and keep guys away from turning the corner if they do turn the corner you're cooked but if he can keep them from doing that he he, um you know he can be very good so 2.8 deflections per game that's about i think it's top 20 in the nba it's right there with like a draymond green or a Kawhi leonard um you know he does a lot of things out on the perimeter with his hands that that generate a lot of turnovers um he just doesn't block shit he's bad at the most loud parts of defense He's also bad at the things that are the easiest to quantify, which is which is a, a functional challenge. I mean, like yeah. the, that that's what you're getting at with the rim protection. It's not only you know like the start. I mean, the argument I think the the thing that's most like I think you brought up Embiid and Embiid's a fine one to do is I mean Gobert is the defensive player of the year. 
But yeah. he's also that's not why he's the defensive player of the year, but he's very good at at those at those specific things, you know, blocking shots at the rim, deterring, defensive yeah. rebounding. Like the I think of them as the big man things. And and it's true that when somebody is not good at those things, and Jokic, you know, defensive rebounding, I'm gonna, I'll draw a separate line from that because Jokic and, and his teams have generally done very well in the defensive glass when he's been on the floor. Um, the, so there, there's kind of two things here, one of which I'm, I'm in line with it on one of them that I'm not, well, which is when you can't do that well, you have to do something else well. But yeah. there are other things that you can do well, and I think that's what you're getting at with the perimeter containment and everything else. And the one that I have been more on, and this is why I've, I'm less high on Embiid as a postseason defender. I think we're going to learn a lot about him this year, hopefully. Hopefully we get to see the Sixers healthy and face some competition. We'll see what round that happens in. Um, but for me, there there's another line, which is how many different things can you do and yeah, totally. how how well can you how well can you do the yeah. like so it's the idea of kind of like the severity of your strengths versus the severity of your weaknesses totally and so yeah. i am less bullish on the centers that are really good at one thing but can only do one thing. Right. And I'm not sure where Jokic fits in on that. I mean, I, I would say that he's not really good at any one thing, but that and he's worse than his brethren at one thing. But the idea that that matters a little bit less, you're not going to have your guy around the paint. But so there's an interesting nuance here that I'm I've been working my way around that I'm not all the way there yet and this playoffs is going to be very informative for me on this, which is the idea that it's possible center defense just matters less in the modern NBA. And and I mean, I articulated this a little bit in the playoffs. Regular season is its own thing. That's that's a right, conversation. Right. But so basically there was the, there's this group of teams that you could argue, and I kind of would, that it started with the Golden State Warriors, even the pre-Durant Warriors, but it continued through that, which are teams that aren't trying to get all the way to the basket. And incidentally, the Nuggets, like the Nuggets, their offense functions in kind of a different way, but there's a part of it that's the truth that, that kind of ties in with this, where it's like, the reason you are efficient is not because you're pounding it at the basket in the half court. You're, you know, you're not getting all the way or you're getting there, but you're getting there when the floor is open. And so it's not the same kind of shot. And there, there aren't that many teams that can pull off that kind of an approach. You need unbelievable personnel. But the thing is, there are teams with that personnel. Like, and that's part Mm, of why I was high, why I've been higher on the Clippers than other people at different moments in time. And this did not work out in the second round last year (laughs) is the idea that if you can, if you can be good at other things that are harder to take away, maybe that can persist. And like, that's a part of the, the Raptors offense in 2019 was, was this theory of the Warriors, but they had a lot of other things going on in the right. in the rant years and so the relevant the, the other part of that and this is and i just don't I, I i need to learn more before i can say that this is my belief on how basketball works is if that is true if there is this element whether it's pull up mid-range shooting or there are a couple different ways you can describe it i mean you could honestly look at the nuggets offense you can see another one if that's the way the league is going, then you can make an argument that in the playoffs, center defense is less important because there's just not that much they can do, which is a really interesting yeah. idea if I'm right. I kind of hope I'm wrong just because I think basketball is a lot more interesting if center defense matters. But we might be, I mean, maybe so it's just like the, you know, these really malleable, the Anthony Davises of the world that matter. But uh, anybody below that, the the highs and the lows are just a little bit less severe. 
So I, I think you're actually dancing around what I what I consider to be probably the most accurate way to put this, and that is you we're talking about adaptability. And Jokic is not adaptable on defense, and because if you can force him to become a rim protector, he just doesn't have it. I don't think he ever will. Like he does some things well around the rim, but he's not going to ever be that kind of guy. The question is, can you build a team and a system around him that? A lot that limits the amount of times he can do that. And I think the Nuggets have done a very good job of that. You know, they play him up and pick and roll. It's actually most bigs will drop or play play a little bit below the screen or whatever. They bring Jokic all the way up because it utilizes his hands and it it, it just, you know, it it prevents guys from turning the corner, you, you know, hopefully turning the corner on him. And it just takes away that rim protection moment uh, from him. I think, you know, there are teams, though, that are going to be able to force him to do it. The Nuggets have lost two games you know, they've barely lost any games since Murray went down, but two of the ones they've lost have been against the Golden State Warriors. Well, what can the Warriors do? You try to play up on Steph Curry and he's going to cook you. And it, it just he's uniquely good at doing that to centers. And so with this this Nuggets team, and I think it's true of probably every team in the NBA this year. It's not always true. The Warriors were a team that I think could adapt and beat anybody in any, any style, whatever, their heyday. And there have been teams like that. But I think the Nuggets are one of many teams that's like – if they get the right road and they play the teams that are not able to exploit that aspect of Jokic's defense, Jokic is going to look like a good defender. If they go up against a team that is able to exploit that aspect, he's going to look like the worst defender in the NBA. And so I, I don't think I would say that it's that center defense doesn't matter. It's just that do you have a team that can take advantage of the things that center defense can't do well? And in particular, uh, somebody that's bad at a certain aspect of, of defense from the center position. That is a really way to, good way to put it. And the first thing I thought of there was the Clippers. Like the Clippers aren't great at turning the yep. corner. Like they, they don't have that type of a guy. And they we we wondered about whether they were you know getting into the mid range going to cause a bunch of cause a ruckus. And they and they didn't really. And you think about right. the, that is you know you could argue is the counter to to what I was talking about before about the Clippers and the older Warriors where they didn't get to the basket all the time. It's like well then you're not taking advantage against the Nuggets in particular. In that circumstance, you're not taking advantage of what they're what they're struggling at. And so what I wanted to do is just kind of game it out for you. So it looks like but but. but- but hold on, I just want to, on that point, because I don't, this is a thing that just never got talked about, but I think it needed to be. If you go back to last year, obviously the Nuggets won. The Clippers, number one offense, I believe, last year, or, or top three, maybe their top three, I think I top three. Was number one. Top three. They get 101 points in game two. They get 96 points in game four. They get 105 in game five. They get 98 in game six, and they score 89 points. So they were held below 100 points three times and below 107 points four to- five times. You know, I know the game was played at a slower pace or whatever, but you're still talking about a team struggling to score. And uh, that's a top offense going up against a guy that everybody said couldn't get stops and and they were able to do it. And again, I think it's not because Jokic is this great defender, but it's because he's great at the things that the Clippers were good at offensively. He's good at stopping those. But if he were to go up against, say, the Utah Jazz like they did last year and they don't have their backcourt defense, he's going to look cooked if Donovan Mitchell can go for 50. It's going to happen again this year depending on who they play. Yeah, I will note that that was actually I, I went back I just went and looked that was an impressively slow series against the Clippers they were averaging right. fewer than 94 possessions a game which in modern but, modern vintage is low but yeah the offenses were were a little you know they, they did struggle in that and you brought the Nuggets in. so I want I want to game this out a little bit before we get to MPJ the Nuggets probably going to be the four maybe they could get to the three the Clippers have a pretty easy schedule I think that they'll be able to kind of handle it though very few teams can lose games that you think they're going to win quite like the LA Clippers. Um, so if you're looking at, you know, the five, six, 
five, six, seven teams, the teams that can be in that range. Mm. Who do you think the who do you think the Nuggets match up well against? Who do you think they would struggle most with? I mean, there's no question they would struggle against the Lakers. I mean, the Lakers have not only just, I think, aggregate talent that's above Denver, probably maybe above everybody outside of Brooklyn, but they have defenders and bodies that they can throw at Jokic. And here's the one thing that I think was the X factor last year and will be the X factor this year, especially if anybody watched that Lakers-Knicks game last night. The Lakers have the ability to play very physical, especially inside And that's where Jokic struggles the most. Not that he struggles against the physicality with it, but he's a finesse player. If you're able to sort of elevate the, 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 the baseline for what a foul is in a series, then he's gonna, you know, he's probably going to be diminished a little bit. And the Lakers are just very good at that. They've got Anthony Davis, who in clutch situations is going to probably be able to guard him well enough. That and then Jokic is not going to at all be able to guard him. That you know that matchup becomes a bit of a, of a problem. So there's no question it's the Los Angeles Lakers by leaps and bounds. And I would even say that the other two teams, Portland and Dallas, that you look at, it's coin flip. I think that I actually like Denver in both series. Don't love them. Um, you know, we'll see how teams are able to sort of shut down Michael Porter or whatever. But Portland and Dallas are two teams that I look at and say, okay, those teams are on par with Denver. They're very flawed, as is Denver. And you know, I Denver has a great chance against both of them. Yeah, I was thinking about your theory of the Nuggets defense, and Dallas is a fascinating component because if you think about kind of some of their base alignments, they don't really have great guys at turning the corner. Like that, that is something right. that, that and, and they're a very, uh, Seth uses the term heliocentric. They're a very heliocentric team. You know, Luca has to do so much Jalen Brunson when he's on the floor, but Brunson's, you know, more of a bench guy than anything else. And the Blazers succeed in a different way, but also their defense is unbelievably terrible. Right. Like, I mean, it's been better when they've been able to have, you know, Covington and Nurk and some of the other guys on the floor. But Jokic will t- take his former teammate out to the deep water. And also the Blazers bench defense is just abysmal. And that yeah. would be a real like that is like an underappreciated storyline of, of their playoffs is just going to be like n- now that they have these better starters, they're playing Cantor and Mellow and then and Nurkic is available. They're playing and Cantor and Melo together again, and they've been absolutely getting caught on fire in some of those minutes. So that's going to be a challenge, and there isn't really a way to fix that. Like it just there, you yeah. just kind of have to do what you're going to do. Uh, but let's get to MPJ. I, I think. But, that, but one thing about Denver's de- a bench is that their bench is elite defensively, but they really struggle to score, and so you get a defense in Portland that can't you know get that they can't really get any stops so it's the old movable object for stoppable force or yeah <laughs> whatever, yeah so. that, that would be very weird in a series between those two teams um and also like i think how rick carlisle if it's the mavericks uses jalen brunson because brunson yeah. i think if they play if they primarily play brunson in minutes when like Millsap and jermichael green are on the floor i think he could run into some pretty big problems because what brunson he doesn't really create a ton of separation he has been this unbelievable finisher around the basket but and it's not like those guys are like super tall but they are good defenders and so will they be able to create enough advantage will because the and the the mavericks at times have the limitation which some other teams have of not having enough kind of like capable dribblers and passers and i think that could end up being a problem against ever both those series like if it's those two absolutely fascinating and the good news for 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 denver is that it looks preliminarily like those, the Mavericks and the Blazers are more likely than the Lakers. We don't know anything for sure as we record this on right. Wednesday. We'll have to see. Um, I, one one quick note on Dallas, though. I when the Nuggets acquired um, Aaron Gordon, one of the things I kept hearing was, "Have you watched him guard Luca? Have you watched him? He guards Luca better than anybody in the NBA." So I mean, I have no idea if that'll hold up in a playoff series, but I do know that that name specifically, Luca, was a guy that they pointed to as he's just really good at guarding him. So I. 
Well, well it's we'll interesting. That, that makes itself. some intuitive sense. I've made the analogy before that, like, to me, the guys that are best on Luka, it's sort of actually like James Harden, where the better way to do it is with length, as mm. long as you're quick enough to do it, because then you can, yeah. like, some of the stuff, like, that was, so the, the, or the was Durant and Harden is, is where, where really this came to mind for me, was, like, you're not really going to kind of, like, stay in front of him in the same way, so you kind of want to be a little bit back and contest. Yeah. And yeah. Aaron Gordon's a pretty good player for that. He moves his feet well, and he's strong enough that Luka's not going to, like, knock him into the stanchion. He's, he's actually really strong. That's yeah. one of the things I didn't realize about him. But he's he's stronger even than what he looks in my. Well, opinion. he was. I mean, because he, he was a lot skinnier when he came into the league. I think that like there there are various things where you have these holdover expectations, and I think that is is one of them. You know, is, is like how strong yeah. a player is. And like Drew Holiday, for example, is a lot stronger now than he was when he came into yeah. the league. And so there there are lots of those that it kind of players bodies change and sometimes right. it's not even in the ways that are as obvious like Jokic getting a whole bunch skinnier like it right, can be right, right. your core is a lot better or you've worked on all this kind of stuff I mean there are there are various examples yeah so I remember you and I had a conversation I think it was on your podcast about a year ago year and a half ago might have even been before that might have been in person like the last time we saw each other and we had this conversation about how the Nuggets shouldn't trade Michael Porter Jr. because Michael oh. Porter Jr. was their ceiling because that he was yes. – I think you're the one who said this well and I've adapted part of it since – is basically the idea that – and I think even with Jokic's improvement, I think this is still true – that if they were to become a true like title contender, it was going to be Porter Jr. becoming something truly great that propelled yeah. them to that place. Yeah. 100%. I, I think – I mean we can't – I can't say that I can take the dub on this one because we still don't know Denver, you know, is with Michael Porter, and and sadly, we might not know for a year or two when until Murray is back and healthy. But I, I think that this was one that the people that watched Porter just it, Porter reminds me so much of Jokic back in 2017, where you watch him every single, you watch him one time, and maybe you go, okay, he can make shots. But you watch him every time, and you're like, wow, this guy makes shots like very few players do. And there's the aspects of the game that he is weak on are the aspects that are most likely for a player to improve on as time goes by, and the Again, they're loud defensively last year. He was he was a turnstile in the playoffs and you know, it wasn't until he got benched that the Nuggets started to win that series against Utah. And all, all those things were true. But what's also true is that's his rookie season. And what's also true is he had one of the most efficient shooting seasons last year of anybody in the NBA as a rookie. And if you just go through and watch the shots that he was taking, the degree of difficulty was higher than average. So he was taking an above average difficulty shot selection and was one of the most efficient players. And now that bears out this season where you look at some of the stats you run through with him and you just go, wow, how many games does he shot over 60%? How many games does he have four threes or more? And then you watch those shots and you go, okay, some of those are wide open because of the offense, but a lot of them are not. He's just so tall and and whatever that he really does look like um, the type of player that breaks defenses. The type of player, then obviously Steph Curry is the number one guy of this, but one of those players where it's like none of our schemes matter because to guard him means we have to compromise everything else. And if Jokic gets to attack a compromised defense, he's just so good. So Michael Porter to me, it was very obvious from some of the very first games, like maybe the first month and a half where he got real minutes that it was like, this is a guy that nobody you can trade for realistically, you could trade him for is going to elevate their ceiling like him if he hits. And now that he's starting to hit, I think everybody is coming to that conclusion. Agreed wholeheartedly. And there was this scuttlebutt after the Nuggets played the the Nets. Somebody, I think, asked KD about kind of the, the Porter Jr. And, and Durant made a point, which I would fully agree with, that 
they don't play very similarly. And I think with Porter, at, yep, at with, all. with Porter Jr., the best analogy I've heard is that he's he he's not quite the same in terms of a couple of important elements that we might get into. But the better analogy is to Durant's former teammate Clay Thompson, like in the, in that they do so. I, much. I, I want it on the record to say that I was I've been making this comp from almost like, again like the second week of his yeah. of his NBA career. Yeah. This is this is the it's a, honestly a more perfect comp than people realize. It is, and and so with both of them, there is this wonder about what they could do if they had the ball in their hands more. Like that we mm-hmm. we periodically seen that with Clay and I mean I remember pre his injuries I mean I saw Michael Porter Jr. in person at I think the first time I saw him was at the Hoop Summit I don't think I got to see him at the like youth levels before that and I was just like holy crap like this guy's just a destroyer like at that point his on-ball game was was really good too his jump shot's always been clean but the on-ball game and we'll see I mean maybe that can come back you know like there there have been guys that you you kind of start at the you start at the base and then you work your way back but with Porter Jr., he we'll, – we'll see, like, I mean, we'll see where the kind of the full endgame motor is. But, like, when you release from where he releases from and the way that he – the kind of the way that he navigates within an offense, it's – so hard to take away and yeah. and what i what i think people some people don't appreciate about porter jr is that somebody who does what he does offensively you could put in any system in a way that i think is more transferable than somebody like jj reddick where yeah. like reddick's a wonderful player not trying to denigrate the dude drill part of it's because porter jr's taller but another part of it is because there's I think there are just more possibilities. I think he's a much better transition player, for example. But also just I, I think that there are more wrinkles and I think there's the possibility of more on ball that yeah, MPJ probably not going to be a primary initiator, and I barely care about that at all. I think that he can do he can do everything else well. He can um and I'm I'm very interested to see some of the finishing through traffic stuff as this game moves forward. Um, uh, some of that, but he, I mean, the tools there are just tantalizing. Yeah. It's so, I, I I agree with you completely about not knowing what he will become in terms of an on-ball creator, because his, he has a very, it's weird. His handle is not great, but it's very functional, meaning he, he, he makes moves that don't, you know, pop, but he just always gets around his guy. And I think it's because he has such long strides and he's a little bit quicker than he looks because he's so tall that he beats guys off the dribble, even good defenders sometimes on when you're just like, that wasn't even a move. He just kind of went around them. And I don't really know how it works. But then when he does have to make a complex move off of the, the dribble, he's he's obviously pretty raw at that. So I don't know if Kevin Durant has such a great handle that's both functional. He gets one step around you and he can score, but also like he can dance with the basketball and do some crazy stuff and and, and score. And I don't think Michael Porter will ever come come that close to having that good of a handle. But he also the thing that he has has that even KD doesn't necessarily have to this degree is he is a very quick jumper. Yes. He gets when he goes into when he catches and goes into his jumper you probably can't block it even if he was a slow jumper because of how high the release is. But the way he's able to get up to the top of his jump and release the ball, he's often shooting the ball before the defense has even caught up off of a screen, even if the screen wasn't effective just because of how quick he is. And the fact that he's a 45% now 44% career three point shooter, 45% this year on six and a half attempts. I just I've seen enough to say I think that's sustainable. I'd be shocked if he dips below 40% in any season even at volume. And when you can elevate that quickly and shoot that well, I don't know that you need the Kevin Durant handle. You probably just need the the functional one that hopefully he'll improve as years go on. Yeah, and I I wonder like what sometimes when a player is so good at this 
but is also physically talented. I mean, go back to Port Jr. being the most, the number one prospect in his class in high school. Is where does he want his game to go from here? Where does the coaching yeah, staff want his so game true. to go from here? Because I, I don't think he's ever going to be like an insane foul drawer, but I could see him doing well right. there. And like, yeah, MPJ's his numbers finishing around the rim are very good this year. But when I've watched it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I, I, I want you to. To me, it's been more that his spots are more finishable. Like he's shooting 84 percent around the rim, but I don't think he's done. I haven't seen him do a ton of that flight around traffic. Like he's doing it more like he. He has really good touch. Uh, he does. So w- one of the things about him is he's really got great instincts for getting open. I mean, you could tell he's been focused on scoring his whole life because he's a very good cutter and he's a very good like second cutter. You know, he'll come off a screen if it's not there, then he makes a cut. If it's not there, he cuts again. And he's just very good at sort of constantly being in attack mode. And because of that, he does get a lot of shots at the rim that are mildly contested. And he's very good at sort of taking the contact, not finishing with a foul or with a dunk, but just finishing with like a hang in the air or adjust his body to a weird angle and finishing it and he just has a lot of finishes that you're like oh I didn't I wasn't expecting him to go that route but he did it and finished so I, I think he actually will be a pretty good f- uh, finisher around the basket but I do agree that I don't know that he'll be a, ever be a great foul drawer because of his style of avoiding contact right and maybe some of that changes when he's like 25 if he gets stronger and everything else like that we, we've seen yeah. we've seen other players with his build turn a little bit though generally they don't get to Aaron Gordon incidentally is somebody that I've talked about in this vein before mm. and MPJ not a huge surprise that he's been so effective in transition especially with the league pivoting to more three-pointers in transition but that's something I was getting at in terms of the difference between him and Redick and yeah some of it is Porter Jr. playing more in this era than than JJ which the things hadn't gotten all the way to that direction yet but the way that MPJ can be successful kind of in the different phases of offense, and even though I think you can make an argument that, not in terms of volume, but in terms of efficiency, it's hard to think of a better circumstance for him to be in. Mm. There is a lot of malleability, and something that we've seen since Jamal Murray went down is that he can st- he can do really well with a larger role, too. Yeah, I'm pulling these numbers up as you speak, because I've been hearing this one a lot, the you know the role. And I and look, there's no question that you play with Jokic, you're going to be a, you know, and you play in the system where he's been able to slowly learn the the difficult aspects. I do wonder if he went to an Orlando Magic team and they gave him the ball right away. If the yeah, worst if, habits, if he was and, like and, Chumo, and if he was like getting Chumo Kikis, like the responsibilities yeah. that he's had for the like last couple months before he got hurt, his game would not nearly be as well rounded as it has become in Denver. I mean, that's the biggest surprise to me is that I just thought, okay, Porter's going to be a Carmelo Anthony type where you're just going to have to live with him doing his thing and and whatever, but. The opposite has been true. He's so willingly bought into, you know, fitting into the system. But here's the thing that I think will surprise people. Michael Porter's stats when Jokic is on the court, you know, this is um, three-point percentage, 43.6. When he's off the court, 50%. Field goal percentage, about the same. His and, and the volume, if you look at it per 36 minutes, you know, it obviously goes up when Jokic is not on the court. So he has actually been a really efficient player and scorer when Jokic was not there, when he's had to carry it. So I, I definitely agree in aggregate, but I think the degree to which that is true is probably a little bit less because he's just a great scorer. Yeah, he is. <laughs> no, and, and I think that the malleability is an important part of this story. And I think that's only – it could increase with time. And there's no guarantee that it will. But I think – I when – as again, I, I say this a lot, but I think it's it's relevant. It was true with Jokic too. It's like when players are really good, really young. On my assumption is they're going to continue improving, not linearly, yeah, yeah. not exponentially necessarily. It can be, and you never really know. Like Luca's had a weird year for that respect, and everything else. And and but good players find other ways to impact the game. Like that is just yeah. it's just the way it works. And also the developmental energy and everything else. And when you consider that Porter Junior 
faced the injury issues that he did, and you, know, you think about like where where his game where his game is going to go from here. And my my basic answer is I don't know. Like I I, I yeah. wonder I wonder exactly how it's going to be, and it could even be a circumstance where he kind of has two different roles. One, when he's playing with the starters, and I mean, especially when yeah. you get Jamal Murray back. And then he maybe, especially if he wants this, if he prefers it, that you give him five minutes, six minutes with the other players, and you, and he gets he gets to explore the studio space a little bit more. And if you, he's good at to, it... Yeah, you have to earn that in this in the league, I, I think. Right. Especially if you're on a veteran team, and I think he has. And that's the difference, is was he capable of doing this last year? Probably. If you played him with the bench and he shoots it, you know, 15 times a game, but they're whatever. Like he probably would have been efficient there, but I don't know that a team and his teammates would have respected him to the degree of, Hey, no, you have, he went through, you think about the resiliency of him missing his college season, getting a second back surgery, then coming to a nuggets team where I thought opening night, his rookie season, we're like, is he going to start? Is he going to do this? He didn't even play for the first two months. Yeah. We, We talked about him maybe being a starter and he didn't even get on the court. And then when he did get on the court, he played great. And then he goes back to the bench and then he gets benched in the playoffs and all of this stuff but he's earned his stripes and i think you watch a guy like Jokic, who he's got that the genius to him where he doesn't understand why other guys don't understand what he does you know like he's almost impatient for people that aren't as smart as him you look at him early in this season early on in michael porter's career and he's just always throwing his hands up he's so annoyed with him now michael porter will take a rush shot and Jokic will cheer it on because it's like he's earned the right to now be an aggressive offensive player yeah that that's a great point uh, where are you on MPJ's defense as of now? Uh, it's, it's funny because it's similar to Jokic where there's aspects of it that are really bad. He can't fight over screens very well still. I mean, everything to do with strength, he he kind of gets bullied. He makes way fewer mistakes than he ever did before, but he's still – he's maybe 80% at being a veteran mistake-free defensive yeah. player. I mean, he just the, – the, the complete like, hey, you, yeah. you were supposed to be the guy here. You missed the that. Way, he makes, the way I put it is he's paying better attention now. Yeah, and maybe that's it. Maybe it is just a matter of – of focus, I, I happen to think it's it's probably more. Um, you know, these are just reps. You know, great players, especially veteran players, don't think the game. It just comes naturally to them. They're just reacting, and I think his reaction speed is speeding up now because the reps are getting there, and it's just like okay, I'm anticipate. There's a subconscious anticipation of what you're supposed to be doing on any possession, and he's starting to get there. The where he's so I, I'd say it's a work in progress, but it's nothing like what it was last year. I mean, last year he was an awful defender. The amount of improvement he's made just during the season this year has been pretty impressive. But the area that he's he's pretty great at is he's 610 and super bouncy i mentioned that quick jump not just the high jump but the quick jump he blocks a lot of shots where guys don't think he would get there in time and he does he just closes the gap so quickly um so he's become this good like shot blocking help side guy um and so i i I think he projects to be a good defensive player in the next several years yeah, my instinct, especially given his limitations on screens, is that, and this this was true before, but I think we're getting more evidence of it that his best defensive position is power forward. Yep. But and and but the thing that he's getting towards, and this is something that's come up a lot in like John Collins and the players, but Porter Jr. has better tools to play the three. Is even if a power forward isn't a perfect defender, there are certain things that you want them to do for defense is going to reach those thresholds. And I think the I think the building blocks are there, and mm. that's an important potential step for for Porter Jr. And I'm not a hundred percent sure that he's going to get there. I'm not seventy five percent sure that he's going to get there, but I am more confident than I was before, and that is extremely important because 
now that he has worked his way into being an unimpeachable starter, I, I think Porter Jr. is going to make an all-star game soon. Now, now his defense matters more because like that, yeah. that is the, you, you have the privilege when you're, when you're limited or when your team doesn't need you to do much that they can go other directions. But once you're important, then it matters. And so that's something we'll learn a lot in probably in two weeks. I mean, that's probably the, the right way to think about yeah. it, about where, where he is and you don't want to read too much into seven games, 14 games, whatever it's going to end up being. But it will be a data point, that's for sure. And I think that the Aaron Gordon addition really goes a long way to unlocking Porter as a defender because Gordon has sort of the girth and strength and just he's also just a great on-ball defender to allow Porter to, regardless of what position he's playing, it allows him to guard a guy that's best suitable to his skills. If you only have one tall player, then like, okay, well, hey, man, you have to guard Kevin Durant tonight because you're, you know, you're the only guy physically to do that. Now that you have a second one, you could say, okay, Gordon's got Kevin Durant, you've got the other guy, you got Joe Harris or whatever it is. And, you know, now it, it, it just, it allows him to more likely be in his comfort zone defensively and take advantage of his skills. So to me, it's all ecosystems. The Jokic, it's funny because Jokic Porter, like, okay, that's not a great four or five. Um, Jokic Gordon offensively, that's not a great four or five. But Jokic Porter Gordon, it's like, oh, now all three of them sort of come together in a way that that makes sense. Yeah, and that was part of the theory of, of the trade, and I think something that the front office did really well. And it is such a shame that we're not going to get to see this fully yeah. operational for a while. I mean, we, with Jamal Murray, we don't have <laughs> yeah. a timeline here. Um, I don't. Last wanna... thing on last thing on Porter, I want to sure. say though, is just that he's insanely driven, and he came close. I think I don't want to put words in his mouth because he stopped himself because he does have you know one of the knocks on him is that he can be cocky, and I think he's I think he's cocky in almost like an innocent way, like he doesn't realize how cocky he is. But he, I think his goal is to be the greatest player to ever play. Now, that's obviously, we can all sit here and kind of laugh at that. But what I mean by that is he's an incredibly driven player. And when he's he's looked at his defense and the defensive critiques and accepted them and been like, they're right. Like, I've got to get better because I don't want to be just this guy or this guy. Like, I want to be the best two-way player in the NBA. And I just think it's impressive for a guy to actually have that goal and to walk the walk. It's not He's not just playing lip service and then taking possessions off. Well, like, he's actually trying to become a, a a lockdown defender. It's so funny. I mean, you think about various other things in your life about like everything is good in moderation and bad in excess. It's like ego is honestly the same thing. And like right. you, yeah. we, we've made the parallels. I mean, you're you're kind of covering a similar point in MPJ's career that I covered in Clay Thompson's. And Clay yeah. was he needed to spend a lot of time working on his defense. That was something, and it was partially was an ego thing, and part like because he's like I want to be a good player, but for him it was also like this is necessary for me to eventually be on a team that wins. And I don't think anybody saw what came coming, but that is it is a part of it. And so whether it's you're a basketball like lifer and you you want to get better because you're doing that, or it's because you're hearing people talk about you, whatever whatever the motive, whatever the thing is. And that's part of why I think about how talented players often get better is that like they have this motivation and if they want to win championships or they want to be the best player of all time, really wherever it goes. And there can be challenges for me, the where you run into problems in terms of ego and cockiness and all that is when somebody plays selfishly. There can also be off court stuff. I mean, there are murmurs, more than murmurs about Trey Young with some of that stuff, like how that mm. how that can come in. But when somebody plays selfishly, whether that be because they take possessions off or because they're not keeping their teammates as involved or anything else like that. And there are times like I've I've never thought of like players being unaware defensively as being a selfishness thing. Maybe if you don't continue to develop it, it can become that. But like, you know, Anthony Edwards this year, I don't think he was a bad defender because he's like a selfish person or anything like that. He just wasn't good at it. 
And ahead. Porter Jr., I think it was more more in that vein than anything else. And and also sometimes, you know, like, I, it sounds like this came up in LaMelo Ball's interviews too. Like, individuals can be wired very differently. And y- you can, there are shorthands that people use that maybe because 90% of the time this thing leads to that thing or these, these traits are shared or something else like that. But the problem with that is, and I mean, this is probably, I mean, beyond all the back stuff and everything else of part why why Mike Porter Jr. fell is they aren't necessarily all correlated. And like, you know, there's some stuff out like LaMelo Ball is kind of a weird dude and Michael Porter Jr. is cocky. You know, right, like, totally. That isn't necessarily like they're not going to take the basketball seriously. They're a bad teammate or anything like that. And it's also the challenge of betting on something that isn't talent. You know, like right. so with both yeah. of those guys, yeah. it was like undeniable, undeniable tools. You could see the feel for the game in some ways in Lamelo's case and in Porter. I mean, his feel is actually very underappreciated, I think, in certain circles. Like, because a lot of the guys who do what he does well aren't intuitive, but he is. Mm. Um, yeah. But I think that those shorthands like they can be a real problem because like I could, because you have to remember that you don't get that many bites at the apple. And I mean, Denver was fortunate that Porter right. Jr. Yep. fell to them, but yep. getting that wrong, if you like there, there are a couple of examples that you can point to. It's like choose choosing or not choosing somebody pri- like primarily or at least significantly involving personality. Like there are times that that works out, obviously. Like there are, you know, yeah. guys that are guys that are jerks and that it doesn't work out or anything else. Totally. But yeah. it's, I, I think that in some ways that is a more dangerous game than some expect. Yeah. Oh, and there's no question about it. And this is where culture, you know, also sort of sets the tone. You bring a guy in to where it's like, hey, if your best player is, you know, making himself, you know, do all of the difficult things and he's putting the teammates in front of him. like it becomes easier when you're the lowest man on the totem pole to say, I'm going to do those things as well. But your point, LaMelo, Anthony Edwards, Michael Porter Jr., all th- I think have come into the league, th- you know, sort of in order or or over the last three years. And all of them, the story on them has been, yeah, like hotheads or not serious or this diff- different things about them. And it's funny because you watch all three of them play and you think these guys are great, great personalities, great players, great you know, whatever. And and it is kind of funny. This is, I mentioned the Austin Rivers quote the other day. He was asked about Michael Porter specifically. And he said he had a great line in there. He said, it's this league is funny and how they determine who gets to be who it meaning like who's the villain and who's the, Oh, he's the cocky one. And he's the nice guy and he's the fundamental or whatever. And sometimes there is a real correlation there, but sometimes it really is just one comment or one tweet or one post game scrum or whatever. And it's like, Oh, you're the guy that criticizes teammates. Got you. You're the locker room cancer. And he's just saying of Michael Porter, he's not like that at all. And, and I, I honestly, the more I'm, I'm get to interview him and the more I get to just kind of watch him play and hear other people on the team talk about him, the more I, I believe it. Yeah. It's absolutely fascinating. I don't want to necessarily end this on a, on a down note. I mean, we've got a lot of updates during this. But <laughs> t- to me, there are lots of reasons why the Jamal Murray injury is crushing. I mean, one of them being the Nuggets yeah. were my favorite team to watch during that, you know, two weeks or whatever it was after the Aaron yeah. Gordon trade. They were one of my favorite teams to watch before that, to be sure. Yeah. They were but, special, man. I know it's funny and it's going to be – it's. That that team was I was really believing for for longer than I'd ever believed before in the Denver Nuggets. I just was like, man, it all comes together for him. But the thing that has that has me shook a little bit more, and you know, you know my proclivities is deservedly so, especially in Porter Jr.'s case because he's made so much less so far. Mm-hmm. Michael Porter Jr. and Aaron Gordon are in line for in Porter Jr.'s case a raise, in Aaron Gordon's case a new contract starting in the twenty two twenty three season. Yeah, Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic are. Already under contract and yeah. 
in some ways, it is actually more difficult to manage this financial situation. If everybody is worth their contracts, you know, like in a certain way, that's actually more difficult. And for those who know, like the phrase that some people associate with me, because I did say it is like ownership is the biggest competitive advantage in the NBA. And my what has freaked me out to my core is that all of these players could be exactly as good as we hoped individually and together. And that that actually makes it so that their shelf life is short. Yeah, Uh, it's so true. I mean, building in the NBA when you're a team like Denver, it's so frustrating because obviously it takes time to build through the draft and you have to put in those years. And then by the time you're ready to sort of push your chips in, you get like one year before then the money doesn't make sense. But you know, you could answer that better than me about whether Denver could retain Murray, uh, Porter, and Jokic. And, you know, would it be hard to build around? Sure. Like, you're going to have to really get a bunch of vet minimums and exceptions and rookies and, and whatever to build around them. But my thing is, those three, I think, offensively at least complement each other in a way that you almost can plug and play. Like, if, if you told me a team that was... Um, Jamal Murray, PJ Dozier, uh, Porter, Gordon, Jokic, and even Gordon, like you look at and you think, yeah, he's a great fit because of some of his two-way things. But is there a defense-only version of Gordon that you could plug in there that would be just as good for Denver? I happen to think yes, because Gordon's shooting like 20% from three anyway, and you're kind of paying him as this like sub-star two-way player, but he's he's not for Denver at least. I just think you can probably get away with that. There's probably that's probably how you build a team, and then you have you know a, a good rookie off the bench, and you have a veteran minimum off the bench, and you got a Millsap off the bench, and you just have a couple of those pieces. To me, the power of the big three makes enough sense that the guys you plug in there are the cheap guys, the Shaq Harrisons of the world and PJ Dozers of the world. That I think you can make it work. We work if you're just willing to pay those three guys. I think you can. It would be in some ways it would be a shame if they have to, but at the same point, yeah. you know, we, we deal with the world as it is, not the world as it should be. I mean, at a certain, at, to yeah. a certain extent, like I've there are certain walls that I have beaten my head against so much that I don't see the point in doing it anymore. I think everybody yeah. knows where I stand, and if and I'm not going to, I'm not capable of changing it. If I if I could, I would. You know, like I want to see the best teams be together as long as they can. Uh, But I think that what you're getting at there is such an important point, which is that the importance of stars in many circumstances is the ability to put quote unquote lesser players, whether you want to say more limited or more raw or however you want to put it and still succeed. Like that is the, you know, like if you want to say, you know, Jokic, the ecosystem stuff we were talking about before, like how you can get into a lot of that. And the wish is always, and, and incidentally, it's generally in the modern era, it's those star players that also can bring other players into the fold and that can make them either want to come or be happy and stay however you want to make that work. And that is a very good thing for Denver overall. I mean, especially as long as these guys want to stick around. But it is it is a challenge to that point. So like the 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 way that I would kind of phrase it is as long as those guys stick together, their floor is exceedingly high. Yeah. And the capacity to spend, the way that I would put that is that it is a it ramps up the degree of difficulty on the front office and on health. You know, like you, you have to have guys stay healthy and everything like that. And yeah, the health thing. Yeah. But let me interrupt real quick, because doesn't isn't this what the Spurs did for 12 years? They had three guys and then they had three different eras because they shuffled the deck, the, the pieces around the three guys. Yep. And it even changed the identity. But your three guys were the same. And Tim Conley, this is what he's been great at. He hasn't necessarily been great. You know, he found Jokic. That was big. And, and getting Murray at seven was big. Michael Porter was kind of a no brainer for them. But the way that their team is structured, the way their front office is structured they're willing to take long-term risks in ways that most teams are not but 
what they're what he's really been great at if you step away and say Jokic a little bit of a fluke because I think it, even he would say that he's been great at finding Monte Morris's and Gary Harris's and just guys even Will Barton off the dumpster pile and and Facundo Campazzo and that's what they're going to have to do going forward if you have those three guys you're going to have to keep finding Will Barton's and Facundo Campazzo's and it reminds me so much of Boris Diaw you remember Boris Diaw how he got to the Spurs he was in Charlotte and they just weren't playing him they thought he was a terrible player and they hated him and he wasn't. He just was in a place that didn't necessarily appreciate or understand his value. And you get him and you add him and all of a sudden he's one of the most important pieces of a championship juggernaut. And I think Tim Conley and the Denver Nuggets are primed to be able to make those types of moves for the next five, six years if they're able to keep the big three together. I'm optimistic about that as well. And it's also important that what to be able to flip some of those players, you know, the identification part. So the example that I use here, you brought up the Spurs, is Jonathan Simmons, where mm. Jonathan Simmons was you know, developed the developed in the Spurs system, became this valuable defensive player, you know, three and D, but lighter on the three. Yeah. And the Spurs made a bet. I think he signed with the Magic. And they basically made a bet of we we'll do a better job finding Jonathan Simmons, another Jonathan Simmons than paying this one. And right. yeah. so th- they didn't end up getting assets there, but they ended up, you know, not having to pay him and getting into those logistics. And so at a certain point, and these often for a fan base can be, they're not as painful as certain things, but they can be very painful, is like at some point they're probably going to need to flip somebody like Monte Morris and pay find a different Monte Morris and pay him less. Like that, they, those, might, have, they the, might have already done that, though. They might have. I mean, Com- Compasso might be that guy. I think Compasso might be their guy for the next couple of years and not Monte, as much as Monte has been a great piece of this team. And P.J. Dozier, same thing. I mean, he's another guy that was cut from several teams, offered first at a two-way, and now he's a guy – I mean, he got hurt. But he was a guy that was probably going to start at shooting guard in the for this playoff run and be great at it. So I, I this is just what I'm saying. I think Tim Conley is – this is – Forget drafting Jokic, which again I think was a little bit of a fluke. Tim Conley's best skill is finding guys from the dumpster pile that fit the piece of the puzzle that Denver needs most, and that's Monte's a great example. Dozier's a great example. Malik Beasley was a great example. Barton was a great example. They just he just seems to find those guys that are second rounders or end of bench guys that are like, hey, but they have a skill set that can work here. Yeah, and that that is going to be exceedingly important for the Nuggets whether they increase the willingness to spend or not, and. Hopefully that works. They better. Yeah. There's there's few styles. Like it's funny talking about the Cronkies because so often like people are like it's 2014 and it's like oh why won't they go into the tax to do this? It's like because that team's not very good and Gallo's out for the year. Like what do you you want them to go into the tax on a year they're at best a six seed? Like it doesn't make sense. They're in a situation right now where over the next two or three seasons we're going to know whether they wanted to win or not. There's no well it didn't make sense to do this or that. It's like no you have a team that is so good that if you are just willing to pay money for they are going to contend and maybe even win one and so, where, and where that money makes a big difference like this is yeah that was oh, the, the okay. criticism that i levied at tillman fertita where it was like if the rockets had been willing to use their mid-level and go into the tax a little bit they would have been you know it, it might not have swung a championship but it could have right and right. like those are the ones that drive me the most crazy i don't want the you know mediocre orlando magic or like for example like the trade that uh Karnischief has made with the bulls like I don't necessarily want those teams to spend aggressively. I want it that if you are if you are a championship contender or at least in the vicinity and spending can make you better, I want you to spend. And it, it's so funny too because the the draw between like going now or waiting or being patient or whatever, it's so much easier for fans and stuff to do. I do a podcast with George Carl. 
And it, it's funny. I love George. I think he's great. He provides so many insights I'd never would have thought of. But every time you present him with, uh, should you slow plays and develop this guy or push it, chips in for a player? Every single time he's like, push in and win now. You don't know what you have. Like, go for it. He's a coach. Just, he's a coach. And the, the coach mind frame is totally like, why worry about tomorrow when we can do something today? Even if the odds of us winning today aren't great, still push them all in. Push the chips. In. Always push them in. And the Nuggets have strictly, I think, have found a nice balance of that. But going forward, there's just no question. You got to push the chips in, man. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, anything else you want to discuss? I'll open the floor to you, or we've talked plenty. We can we can end it here. Uh, no, I think it's good. I mean, there was way more to discuss when Murray was back. I, I, I'd be. I have a question for you since you're not in Denver, and this is like a, a question that carries some baggage. But if you're in Denver, but. When Jamal Murray comes back next March, and let's just assume he's fully healthy, there's no like I'm not trying to talk about integration time. Let's just say he's back and hits the ground running. How do you rank Denver's players one, two, and three in terms of just like value? I mean, Jokic is one. I don't think there's much of an argument there. Uh so I would say right now, Murray two, MPJ three, but if I'm gonna guess where MPJ is at that point, I think right. Porter Jr. might be number two. And the biggest frustration, and I've had this with, with Jamal Murray forever is the peaks and the valleys. Like that's <laughs> it drives like his capacity to have just nothing burger games is you know so it's it's not the, the analogy could be to like and incidentally this came up with MPJ it's come up with a bunch of young guys like when he was a rookie of the you think about the five good games and you don't think about the five bad games like like when you know especially like fans yeah, get totally. chesty and all that type of stuff and it, it comes totally. every you I could pick somebody for every single team over the last five years where that's been the case. Jamal Murray isn't like uh, he's way too good a player to have that happen as often as it does. Oh, totally. And even this year, even this year, there was. I mean, he got a little bit more consistent in the back half of of the season when he was healthy. But the early part of the season, it was the same story: ten point games, twelve point. You're just like, what happened? Exactly. And so I. I also think that you know Jamal Murray, his defense can come and go too. But I, I think that the, that might be the next step for MPJ is also like becoming a more consistent defender and all that. So yeah, but part of why I love Murray on this Nuggets team is that if you can withstand the dips, and I'm hoping the dips get less less extreme. Yeah, there is there is real value, and it's funny. Like we brought up Clay as a as a comparison for Michael Porter Jr. before. There is utility there is something to having somebody whose highs are as high as his are because the idea is like oh crap like this team is unstoppable like those having having that type of player on a team that has a high floor is actually really useful and i think that that like for example like i think that's something different about and we'll see where jalen brown and jason tatum go with the celtics like the celtics tatum has some moments now where he's that guy but generally speaking, and this is a big criticism of mine of Aaron Gordon's last team, the Orlando Magic. Like, granted, the Magic were a way worse team in every way than, than right. the Nuggets have been the last couple of years. But those are the sometimes the guys that make things really interesting. And yeah. so I'm really thank. I think Jamal Murray's foibles would actually bother me more on a worse team. And incidentally, they might even bother me a little bit more on a team like in like a, a tier one. And maybe the I mean, hopefully the Nuggets will be there when he comes back. But like, because then it's like, well, if you were more consistent, you. you might just be the title favorites you know like you you would take some of the ambiguity out but i do appreciate having somebody that volatile on a team that sometimes can use a little bit of that volatility yeah yeah i think 
and that's what's interesting about uh, about Denver is you know Murray is has been so up and down, and Porter has been pretty consistent you know mm-hmm. over this over the stretch at least in terms of scoring you know just that you look at the numbers he's twenty points or above in almost every game for the last three months, and that's just something Murray never really did. So I, I'm curious to see how that shakes out. When you are the point guard, the ball you don't have to worry about the ball getting you know getting touches. You just naturally get them. That's one thing. I mean, this is on the horizon a ways, but it's one thing about how do they establish Porter versus how do they establish Murray next year when they all come together? Because Porter has to be established with team support, and Murray doesn't. And I just I'll be curious to see how that dynamic plays out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking time. Pleasure as always. That was fun, Danny. Yeah. Thanks again to Adam for taking time to come on. You can check out his work at DNVR, which is such a cool concept and I'm really happy that it's working out well for them and you can also follow him on Twitter if you don't already Adam underscore at Maris A-D-A-M underscore M-A-R-E-S love having him on love talking with him and thought the conversation on Jokic's defense in particular was really interesting and there are not many people as intelligent and thoughtful for me in the NBA world as Adam and the fact that he knows this particular team so well is a real lifeline for me and I mean I watch the Nuggets plenty but to to get that kind of insight from somebody who I trust a lot is really valued hope you enjoyed the episode as well if you want to support the show there are a lot of different ways you can do it you can leave a rating leave a review in the podcast player for choosing Spotify Apple Podcasts really wherever and you can also tell other people about the show word of mouth is very important and subscribing downloading every episode is really useful real gm radio will never come out on a specific day of the week it is just when i'm available when my guest is available and so that means subscribing is a great way to have it just pop in your inbox you don't have to see a tweet from me or something else like that you can also check out my other work nate and i are done with the league pass nba cast because there are no more league pass mondays and so we're going back to the the kind of like call it the traditional nba cast and gonna have a new fun wrinkle with hot mic um but we'll, we'll have more on that at other points in time and dunked on still going on strong dunked on dunked on prime sunday slash mondays with nate that's the public episode and then the other four and we might be modifying the structure a little bit for subscribers because of the playoffs and so we're gonna change the we'll see if we want to change things around but you will get plenty of content Content for sure from us as the playoffs go on i think everybody's used to that by now if you have any feedback on the show good bad or indifferent danny larue nba at gmail.com is the way to get to me if you take the time to write it i will take the time to read it that is my promise i try to reply i, I do what i can but um and i do prefer email to other things because twitter's pretty, pretty ephemeral and i get other kinds of stuff so that can be more difficult if you want it to be seen and ideally responded to that's the way to do it And that's enough for now. So heading into the playoffs, extremely excited about that. And the play-in will be a fascinating wrinkle, getting to see the kind of the full vision of what it can be, both conferences, probably some really awesome matchups. So looking forward to that. And then the whole enchilada starting a week and a half from now. And that's it's going to be a challenging, a fascinating playoffs from round one on. And I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.